Have you ever thought about the inventions of the world that have really kind of pushed humanity and civilization forward? You know, what, what inventions kind of come to mind when, when you think of those? Maybe it's the wheel or the printing press, the telephone, the combustible engine. Maybe it's the light bulb. You know, the light bulb was invented in 1879 by Thomas Edison, and it really changed the way that we engage with nature. Now, before the light bulb, you know, when things got dark outside, well, people just went to sleep. Before the light bulb, if you were outside, it began to get dark. You had to light a torch. You had to light a candle. You had to do something in order to light your path. But now with the light bulb, I mean, you just get out a flashlight. You just take out your smartphone. You know, it's light. And from the light bulb came all kinds of other inventions related to light. We've learned a lot about light in the last 150 years or so. We've, we've learned that light is used for sterilization. Light kills germs. Light is used for x-rays so that we can see inside the human body. There are light rays that are used for surgeries. Light is used for uh, killing germs. Light is used to grow plants indoors. Light is used all over the place, and light is especially used at Christmas time, isn't it? As we drive around and we see the lights and the streets all lit up and homes lit up, there's something about the lights of Christmas. And you know, experts tell us that we are really just kind of scratching the surface related to our knowledge of light, that there's still a whole lot more about light that we are just beginning to understand. And our culture has this fascination, I think every culture has, of thinking about light and darkness. And it's easy to focus on the darkness, you know, because we know the darkness of ourselves. We know the darkness in our own lives and those skeletons that we like to keep in the closet, the dark decisions and choices that we've made or that others in our circle have made. And sometimes we just live in the backwash of all of that. We know darkness all too well. We can look around our culture and we see the darkness of culture. We look around the world and we see the darkness of the world. And so we can be tempted sometimes to think, that the darkness is winning. But it's the verse that we just heard from John's gospel. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. See, it's never that the light wins. It's always that sometimes there's a failure of the light. And you know this is true, because you walk into any room, right, and you flip on the light switch, and if the light bulb goes out, you don't just throw your hands in the air and say, oh man, the darkness got another one. No, you get another light bulb and you screw it in. It's never that the darkness wins. It's always that there's a failure of the light. And so this Christmas season, we're kind of taking a pause for our empowered study through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to focus on the first chapter in John's gospel, how John introduces Jesus to us and how he invites us to see Jesus, the light of the world, who's come to bring us into his marvelous light. Let's go ahead and read again what Hayden and Kaylee so beautifully uh, recited for us earlier. John 1, 1 through 5 John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, he was in the beginning. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You know, 
Christmas season, when you think about Christmas season in the beginning, and okay, how would you begin by explaining Jesus to someone? Christmas seems like a logical place to start, right? The birth of Jesus. I mean, if you were writing a gospel, probably that's where you would start, the birth of Christ. It's an incredible story when you think about it. I mean, you just go back and rehearse this story in your mind and you see everything that's happening, the angels coming to this virgin girl and there's this teenage couple and there's this miraculous conception that takes place and then you have shepherds coming to worship and evil Herod wanting to get Jesus and so this new family, they're on the run into Egypt and wise men, I mean, so much intrigue, so much drama, so much fascination. Seems like a good place to start. John doesn't begin there when he begins explaining Jesus to us. If you remember, Mark didn't begin there either. He doesn't include the birth of Jesus when he begins to talk about Jesus. For Mark, he says that the good news of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, that it began with the promise. A promise about one who would come and prepare the way for the Messiah. So he started with a promise. John, he goes back even further, and he tells us that Jesus is the pre-existent Son of God. That is, that he existed before existence. He's the Word, the Word with God, and the Word who was God. And, and, and you hear that, it's almost like your mind starts spinning like, John, what, what are you saying? What does this even mean? God is word? God is with God? Word with God? And God is, like, what does this even mean? It's almost hard to comprehend. Your head is spinning trying to figure out, okay, John, let's just see, what are you saying? And what John is doing here is actually something very incredible because he's borrowing this old Jewish tradition. And it's the whole idea, it's still in practice today, that, you know, in the Jewish law, uh, there's a lot, hey, do not take the Lord's name in vain. Don't misuse God's name. He takes his name very seriously. And so Jewish custom, uh, we're not going to say the name Yahweh because we don't want to even risk saying his name incorrectly. And we know ourselves, we know the sin that we bring. And just for us to say it, perhaps that would be to misuse it. We don't want it. We don't, we want his name glorified high and lifted up. So we're very careful with the use of his name. That's the thinking. And so when you have the name Yahweh, they don't say it. So instead, they use this word Mimra. It means a word. It's, a common, it's common what they'll use in place of Yahweh, Mimra. And that word literally means a word. And whenever that word is used, it's always used when God is revealing something to humanity. Okay, he's speaking. He's revealing something about himself, some kind of truth that they need to understand. And so the emphasis is always on, when that word is used, what God is revealing. But when John uses word here, logos here in the Greek, he, he spins it just a little bit. Because the emphasis is not so much on what he is revealing. It's on the revealer himself. The emphasis is on Jesus. And we know that it's Jesus because you skip down to verse 14. It says, the word became flesh. And then who is this flesh? Well, John explains further. This flesh is Jesus. He's the word. He's the word became flesh. Jesus is the word. And he's God. And John goes on to tell us that God, Jesus, was there at the beginning, at the beginning of creation. And without him, nothing was made that was made. He made it all, in other words. He spoke everything into being. Jesus is the creator God. 
And so just think about that for a moment. The back in Genesis 1-1, when Jesus speaks, he says, let there be light. Or in Hebrew, simply, light be. And he speaks light before he ever spoke the physical sources of light. You realize that? He didn't speak the physical sources of light until day four of creation. That's when he spoke into existence the sun, the moon, the stars. Before any of that, he just speaks light into existence. What is this light? Well, he's the light. It's it's as if Jesus just pulls back the curtains of time and space And he just allows the glory of the Godhead to shine forth throughout the expanse of all the galaxies, of all the universe that he's going to begin speaking into creation. It's his glory. It fills it all up. Light. And you know what? When you skip ahead to the end of the book, not the end of John, but Revelation, what happens? The exact same thing happens. In this new earth, there's no need for the sun. Why? Jesus says that he will be the light who lights it all up that the lamb is the light. His glory shown. This is what he's talking about. His glory on display. The God who says, let there be light, he himself is the light. And so John, as he's talking about the word, like mid-paragraph, he just switches his metaphor altogether. It begins the word, you know, the word with God, the word who was God. And then he ends it, and the light shines in the dark. Who's the light? He's not talking about the sun. He's not talking about stars. He's talking about Jesus. That Jesus shines in the darkness and the darkness will not overcome it. You know, sometimes we look around at the darkness of the world and the darkness of everything going on and it's so easy to think the darkness is winning. And John makes this statement to us, no, the light wins. The light wins. The one who came, this pre-existent one. He is the eternal light. And it almost makes you think back to Isaiah's prophecy. If you're familiar with it, Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, Isaiah wrote this, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. You understand, Jesus was born at a dark time. It was a dark time in Bethlehem when Jesus came. God had seemed quiet for centuries. When Isaiah wrote this prophecy back in Isaiah 60, it was a very dark time in Israel. Very dark. It was during the Babylonian exile. And when you study Israeli history, as, as we did going through the Minor Prophets, One of the things you know is that in many ways, Israel's history is divided before the exile and after the exile. It's the dividing point of Israel's history. That before the exile, things seemed good. Was not necessarily rally, but it seemed good. And Solomon built this incredible temple and there was wealth and there was prosperity and things were good. Now, God had sent prophets he had, he had sent people to tell them, hey, you got to turn around. You got to repent. You got to turn back to God. You're getting caught up in all the worldly stuff and your own ambitions and all this. Your behavior is an abomination. You need to repent. You need to change your ways. You need to come back to me. Otherwise, I'm going to send in foreign kings and they're going to wipe you out. 
Nobody believed that. Nobody nobody thought that would really happen. Nobody thought that the Babylonians would come. Nobody thought that Nebuchadnezzar would one day invade Jerusalem and just tear it all down until it happened. And Nebuchadnezzar charges in with the Babylonian army and wipes out Jerusalem. But it wasn't just Jerusalem. He wiped out every fortified city throughout all of Israel. There was no capital left, but there was no infrastructure left. There was nothing left. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people were killed. And Babylon took the best and the brightest and the young, and and they lead them off into exile to train them essentially to become Babylonians, to indoctrinate them into Babylonian culture. And so we read about Daniel and his friends. And this is what the Babylonians do. They give them new names. They give them a new past. They give them a new future. They give them a new identity. They make them Babylonians. And so with Daniel and his friends, we get to read the courage of how they stand up and they resist that. But at the same time, we also read laments of just the devastation in the hearts of the people as they were in Babylon. You you, you may remember the psalm where the Jews riot and they say, oh, we had to hang our harps on the limbs of the willow because how can we sing the songs of Zion in a strange land? For Israeli culture, Jewish culture at that time, it was, it was religion, relationship with God was very much temple-driven. I'm being a little oversimplistic here, but But temple was where you go to meet God. Temple was where you worship God. Temple was the focal point of your religious experience. And can you imagine for a moment, if this is where you meet God, and this is where you worship God, and this is where you want to bring people to see God and to know God, and then the temple is reduced to rubble? And the people who reduced it, they're polytheists telling you how strong their gods and how awesome their gods are, and look at the power of our gods, and how strong is your God? Look at your temple. It's nothing. What does that do to your theology? How does that mess with your mind? You know, it's, it's, it was a dark time. It was a hard time. You talk about darkness. I mean, they were living it. They were, they were feeling it. But at the same time, they began to learn about God. Learn that God is the ever-present God. He's present in Babylon just as he was present in Israel. He's not limited in geography to a building. They began just to recite the scripture. At this time, they began to, to write them down. It was, they had it memorized, and so they began to write, write it down and just go back to who God is. And prophets began to speak. They had been speaking, but they they speak more. And one of the prophets, Isaiah, and he comes and he preaches about a light that is coming. A light that is coming to them. And why is this such good news? Why is this such different news? Because they are in darkness and they need the light. But this is not a light they can invent, you know. This is not like Edison and the light bulb where they say, okay, we got to get out of this darkness. Let's just put our heads together and maybe we can come up with something here. This is not a light they can invent. This is not a light they can go to. They get, okay, we just got to find the light. Let's just go, like, let's just search. Maybe we can find something that will help us here. Let, let, let's, so they go on a, no, no, no. 
This is not a light that they go to, that they go find. This is a light that is given. You know, it's other religions, it's other cultures, and they, they give us this whole idea that you must come into the light. This is not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is not come into the light. The message of Christianity is the light came to you. That the light has been given to you. It has come upon you. That in your darkness, the light shines. The light is given for Israel. The light is given for Babylon. The light is given for us. And I tell you all the time, the good news of the gospel is not that you find God. God wasn't lost. He didn't need to be found. The good news of the gospel is that God in Christ Jesus found you. That when you were in your darkness, when you were in your lowest point, God sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to find you, to rescue you. It was a light who was given. And this is the message that Isaiah is speaking. It's a message that John spoke to us. That God is revealing, yes, I understand you're in darkness. He understood the times of Israel and the darkness that they were facing then. He understood the darkness of Bethlehem and how, how things were with Roman rule and Roman occupation, how dark things were then. He understands the darkness of our world too. And it's this reminder that I understand. I understand the darkness that you're living in. The darkness of your choices that you've made or the choices that others have made. The trouble that you're in, the pain that you're in, I understand that. But I've come to shine in that darkness so you can see me rightly for who I am. So that you can see you and know who you are. So that you can know your purpose in life, your reason for being. And so that you can know that I can take you home to the place you're meant to go. I'm the only one who's come from the Father. I'm the only one who can take you there. This is the message of Isaiah. This is the message of John. This is the message of Christmas. Not only that, though, that in Isaiah's prophecy, and as Jesus would later say, that you shine, that this light shines in you so that you now shine for others. You shine so brightly that you actually draw other people in. They're fascinated by it. What's going on in your life? What, what, what is this different? And so Isaiah, he put it this way, arise and shine. Did you hear him? Arise and shine. Your light has come. And in that is this implication that you can't actually shine until your light has come. That it begins with his light, the eternal light. And when his light shines upon you, arise, shine, your light has come. And you know, that's the only natural thing to do, really. I mean, if light comes and you don't shine, something is very wrong with you. And we know this to be true, right? In just the physical world, there's the dawn of a new day. The sun comes up. The light shines. So what do you do? You get out of bed and you live life. And if you don't, if you just like stay in bed, ah, I'm not getting up today. You say, something is very wrong. You know, you're calling the doctor. Are you like clinically depressed? What is happening? What, why are you still in bed? Right? There's a new day. You just can't lay in bed all day. No, there's a new day. And Isaiah is saying that physical reality is the same thing that's true in the, in the spiritual world. That when Jesus shines in your life, what do you do? You arise and you shine. This is what happens with good news. 
You see the good news of Christmas and the good news of Jesus and the good news of the eternal light who's shining. And so what do you do? You shine. You tell other people about them. You share this good news. You make disciples. This is what light does. It makes you get up. It makes you shine. Arise, shine. Your light has come. Have you ever had a moment in your life, though, where it feels like the lights go out? Maybe where it feels like your life is defined by this before and after. Like before, everything was really good, and now, well, I'm just trying to put one foot in, the other, in front of the other. I'm just trying to get by. Now, before, everything was great, but then the house burned down. Before, everything was really good, and then my parents got divorced. Before, everything was good, but then my spouse left me. Before things were good, but I made this stupid decision. I mean, if I could take it back, I'd take it back, but what's done is done. And so it almost feels like before there was light, and now I'm in darkness. Understand, this is how Israel felt when Isaiah prophesied. This is how they felt. Man, before the exile, we had this awesome temple. Everything was good, and now, mm, not so much. Jesus comes into the darkness. Even a darkness that's so dark, you say, you know, I just got to move away. I, I, you know, maybe if I just move away and I get a fresh start somewhere, I can just kind of leave that all behind. Those skeletons can stay in the closet. And I'll get a fresh start. Things will be better. Because you know, hey, what I broke, it can't be fixed. What I lost, it just can't be recovered. So you try to hide from it. You try to push it away. And John makes this statement, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. It might try to. It might try to push it back, try to snuff out the light, but the darkness will not overcome it. it John makes this statement, the light wins. The light defeats the darkness every single time. The light wins. But in this, there's this whole idea that the world does indeed resist the light. Because in some ways, we like our darkness. You know, the idea of light, it has some good and bad to it, really. Because when light comes and it illuminates everything, and you see things clearly, uh, you see where you are. And that's good. But you see where you are. And sometimes that's not so good. Because you know. I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. I'm so far from what Jesus would have for me. This is, I'm a lost God. You can think that way. It's like if you have a closet in your room, in your house somewhere, and it's just kind of maybe the catch-all, and so you throw all your stuff in there, and it just gets all cluttered and, and congested and everything, and every once in a while, you'll open the closet door, and you'll just look in, and you're like, oh, man, this is a mess. And so you just turn the light off, and you close the door, because you can think, if, as long as the light's off and the door is closed, I don't have to deal with it right now. But if I just leave the door open and the light on, well, then I've got to clean this up. And it's just easier to keep it in the dark. And we have things like that in our own lives, don't we? It's easier just to keep it in the dark than to actually deal with it. And so when the light comes and it shines on those dark places in our lives... We almost want to retreat. There's something in us almost that says, well, I just want to resist the light. I want to walk away from it. 
But you know, you can't ever really be free until you deal with it. I mean, Paul writes and he says that this sin, it so easily entangles us. And there's something about just the entanglement of it all that almost traps us in, that causes us to resist. But John says the light wins. The light shines in the darkness and it wins. That's the whole idea. Light, it's not that the darkness wins. When we look around, you think everything's so dark. It's always that there's a failure of the light. Now, have you ever been on a cave tour? You know, you visit a cave somewhere, and they take you on this tour. You go underground beneath the earth, and maybe there's some room in there, and you know how it happens, right? There's a tour guide with you, and at one point when you're in the cave, the tour guide says, all right, make sure, make sure you have all your cell phones off and everything. I'm just going to turn the lights off for a second just so you can see this. And so he does, right? He turns the lights off. Everything is completely just pitch black. And you can put your hand right in front of your face. I mean, like right here. And you can't see a thing, right? You can't see your hand. It's like a centimeter in front of your face. You just, it's completely dark. You cannot see anything. And in that type of darkness, they say it doesn't really take long for you to become disoriented, for you to become confused. That if you were just to stay in that darkness for any length of time at all, it's very disorienting. It's very confusing. But then the tour guide, he flips the light back on, and you can see clearly. And it does not matter how big that room in that cave is, right? When he turns the light bulb on, whether it's his flashlight or some light in the cave, what happens? The light wins. You can multiply the, the cave however many times you want. The cave could get a thousand times bigger, a million times bigger, a billion times bigger. It doesn't matter. When the light goes on, the light wins. It's just how light works. Darkness doesn't snuff it out. The light wins, and the light wins in your life too. But sometimes we want to resist it. One of the great things about Christmas is, at this time of the year, I think the light seems just maybe a little more inviting because we're reminded how Jesus came to earth in this first advent, how Jesus put on flesh, and it was the flesh of a baby. And you know, there's something about a baby that just kind of disarms us, isn't there? There's, there's something about a baby that just invites people to draw near, to come close, there's something about a baby that causes us to just to kind of look in and to see their soft skin and the little dimples in their cheeks, to hear their little noises that they make, to want to hold them close. There's something about a baby that's inviting, that's disarming, that's approachable. And so this time of the year, the world still stops and comes close, even for a moment, and looks at the baby. You know, you know how it happens, Right? That, hey, we all get our crates down, our bins down, our boxes down, and we begin to unpack everything, and the tangled lights come out, and the tinsel comes out, and the ornaments come out, and the trees come out, and the wreaths come out, all the stuff comes out. And then there's that box. It's labeled nativity scene. I have one at my house. You might have one at your house. And you open the lid of the box, and you carefully unwrap each of the figurines, and, and you put them out. There's the shepherds and the angels, there's the animals there, there's the wise men. In our house, the wise men are in a distance because they didn't come for like two more years, so they're back over there a little ways. And, and there's Mary and Joseph, 
And you know, all those figurines, they, they don't get lost in like the fa-la-la-la-la of the season or anything. They just stand there mesmerized by the baby lying in the manger. And for a moment, we do too, don't we? Our, our eyes are drawn to the center of the nativity scene, Jesus as a baby. There's something about a baby that's so approachable. In John's gospel, as he writes, he invites us just to linger there a little longer, just to peek our heads in a little longer, and to remind ourselves that this baby lying in a manger is the pre-existent God, the pre-existent Son of God. And this little baby being held by a feed trough holds the whole universe together. His little lips that cooed and cried formed the first words of creation. His little fists clenched in that manger formed humanity. And so we linger and we watch and tick, tick, tick. The seconds go by. There goes another one. There goes another one. There goes another, the passing of time. You can't get them back, you know. It's like a squirmy fish in your hands. You might try to hold time, but it, it just has a way of moving. You, you, you can't hold it still. There's nothing you can do to stop time. You can't stop the earth from rotating or the stars from shining or the galaxies from expanding. It's impossible. It just seems to go. And there's Jesus. The pre-existent God, man, Time does not have a hold on him. He steps in and out of time the way we step in and out of a house. You know, for us, the hours, the minutes, the seconds, they just keep on going, not for him. He moves in and out of time freely because he creates it. And so there's something else about his light that shines. It shines into all that darkness and it wins. That's just not the darkness of the present. That's the darkness of the past. You know, that defining moment in your life when you, you know, things were pretty good until. It shines in that until. It shines in that burnt down house. It shines in that broken marriage. It shines in the death of that loved one. It shines and somehow Jesus' light, it redeems it and recuperates it and it gives value to it and purpose to it. It just doesn't leave it in a closet hidden away. He redeems it. This is the power of his light. It's not just for the present. It's not just for the future. It actually reaches into the past and gives purpose to all that stuff that we just wish would go away. But it does shine in the present. It illuminates how we're supposed to live now, the people we're supposed to be now. And it shines forth into the future giving us this glorious hope for the day when we are completely free from the presence of sin. No more do we have to do it. It is freedom. This is the power of the light of Christ. A light that shines in your past and redeems it. A light that illuminates your present and a light that goes forth, shines forth into your future. You know, there's been a lot of inventions in the history of the world that have pushed humanity forward. But the thing with all those inventions is that's just what it does, is it pushes us forward. It's only the light of Christ 
that has the power to actually reach backward and to redeem the past. Only the light of Jesus can do that. And it does. He even makes this promise that he'll recover wasted years. She so looked back and said, man, I, I spent so many years doing this, that, and the other thing, focused on me, myself, I. I didn't care about people. It was all about me. If I had it to do all over again, we say. And Jesus says, I can reach into that. I can recover wasted years. I can give them purpose, and I can give them meaning, and I can give them value. They don't just have to be hidden away. It's only the light of Christ that does that, and at the same time illuminates our present and shines forth into the future. And that's why he came. That's what Christmas is all about, to bring us into the light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you are a good, gracious, generous God. Any of us, when we see the type of darkness that was over this world because of sin, God, we, we'd, we'd want to run from that. We'd want to hide from that. We would think it was too big to do anything about, and for us it would be. But God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, you found us when we were in this disorienting, this confusing darkness where we thought good was bad and bad was good and we were confused about gender and marriage and, and parenting and priorities and a whole host of things, you came in and you show us truth and your light shines in the darkness still. And God, we have this hope that your light wins because that's what light does. So God, help us to walk in the light to shine, to arise, to shine, as you call us to do. We recognize we need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and the grace of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Central, just a couple things before you leave this morning. I do just want to remind you again about our Christmas Eve service, 5 o'clock on Christmas Eve. It's going to be a great time just to come together. We hope that it's, if you have like maybe family parties or anything that evening, that uh, you'll just make this a part of it, that you'll just come, start here, worship with your church family, and then go and join that part. It really is a special, special service. I'm sure you'll be encouraged by your time with us that evening. And then also, uh, this is one of those fortunate years where Christmas Day is on a Sunday morning, and so the family of God gets to come together to worship God. That Sunday, we'll simply have one service so we can all be together. It will be this 1030 service. And then next week, 6 o'clock, we hope you'll come back out for the, the children's live show. It's going to be a lot of fun. It'll be fun to see all the kids on stage. So hope you'll be here for that as well. In the meantime, this week, walk in the light, arise, shine. Jesus has come. So share Jesus, impact people. We love you, Central. See you next week.